We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is uh, Politics Friday, Session 7, and you have Bob Brandon and Hampton Keithley here to uh, continue our conversation about politics and how you think biblically about politics. So you want to do a review? I'm for excited, us? Hampton. <laughs> I do, excited. but I want to say something first. <laughs> I want to say something for you know. Hardly anybody would say that about me, except you. That's so funny. Um, but as I look out the window, you know, I'm in my my study, and it, you know where I live, right? In, Is in the snow mountains on the ground, of Colorado. Still? <laughs> it's snowing as as we're speaking. Are it you is kidding? snowing, and it, this is. May 11th, it's sleety snow, you know, once it hits the ground, it's melting, but, and it snowed yesterday some, so it's not like I'm going to have to go shovel the driveway, but boy, it is, you know, like, uh, 930 in the morning and it is dark. You can hardly see the clouds are thick. Oh boy. Well, we, uh, so what, what an one e- thing that exciting. I had, yeah, that. <laughs> Living in Colorado, one one thing I did not experience was thunderstorms. You know, once or twice, some little bitty ones, but we had one last night yeah. that shook the house, and you couldn't hardly carry on a oh, conversation. Oh goodness! So, oh goodness, that is such a powerful thing. You know, I whenever I experience that or hear someone else experience that, my mind instantly goes. Uh, having spent a lot of time on the water myself to the disciples in the boat with that huge storm and they're going to sink and then they're scared to death, you know, and the the power of storms and water is just so, uh, it it makes you feel so small. I mean, you are completely at the mercy of, of mother nature. Right. And, uh, so they they wake Jesus in the back of the boat, and he apparently is kind of disgusted by their fear. You know, like what you of little faith. Well, my gosh, you're gonna drown in a boat on the ocean. Well, on the sea, right? He just says, "Peace, be still," and it uh, instantly goes calm. I can't imagine a more powerful. Uh, demonstration and does it say in, does it is it is it in mark that it says and they, they go like who is this guy <laughs> yeah that that would be the natural that's the point of including that miracle right yeah. who is this because see when you get me you know how to push all my buttons see in the immediate context to that what had happened just before is the 
miraculous feeding. And the crowds are thinking, this is the Messiah. And here's the disciples in the next scene going, who is it? This isn't just a Messiah. You know what I mean? This isn't just a Davidic king. Who, who is this that can calm the sea with a word? Right. And so their, their mind is being expanded into, I, I am the Messiah, but I'm a lot more than that. You know, your, your concept of the Messiah is not nearly large enough to fit me in there. Yeah, and uh, so that's what's going on in that, that, that scene theologically. But so anyway, Hampton, I'm looking out the window. Boy, it, it, even since I brought that up, it's picked up. So let's get to the text. Let's get to what we wanted to talk about today, because we we use as our guide through our concept of Politics Friday, David Van Drunen, good scholar. I, I've really enjoyed reading him. I'm going to be reading him quite a bit. So the book that we use is Politics After Christendom, and he just makes some great points. Here's my goal with going through Van Drunen. If you can picture your mind as a building, maybe more like a palace. So if you picture your mind as a palace and you've seen buildings being constructed before, something like Van Drunen, <clears throat> picture your mind as a palace and you, you've seen a building being constructed before and you remember the stage, obviously, where, where there's a foundation that goes in first. That's part of a different lecture, but then you see the framing so people like Van Drunen and Truman are great for providing the framework of the palace of your mind. We're not trying to dictate to people how they should think about current political events, you know, do this or do that. What we're trying to do is build a building in your mind by which you can analyze what you see around you. So, th so that's our goal. So the way we started out with Van Drunen is we talked about uh, governments worldwide in their most basic sense are four things. They're biblically legitimate. You, you have to have a government to carry out uh, mankind's original job description of ruling the earth. Uh, second, though they're legitimate, they're also... Uh, provisional. That is to say, they're not the ultimate form of what we're going to be experiencing. They're not the ultimate form of God's program on earth. They're provisional until the millennial kingdom comes and then the new heavens and the new earth. So they're legitimate, but they're provisional. Second, they're common. That is, they're, they're common to all people in every place. And you've been good about pointing that out, you know, what, what that word common means. So everybody on earth falls under some sort of governmental authority. But fourth, they're accountable. There's, there's no better example of that than Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> right? Right. So there, there are limits. Um, you know, God does place limits on, on how far off the track you can get. He, he won't let you get that far. So they're legitimate, but they're provisional. They're common, but they're accountable. Then we spent a time or two on the Noahic covenant because that covenant 
in Genesis 9 and 10 applies to all people everywhere. And it's essentially renewing God's command to Adam. The Noahic covenant applies to everybody, believer or unbeliever. It is the command to reproduce, fill the earth, to rule the earth. And it's the death penalty against killing someone, right? And so what's inherent in the Noahic covenant are family institutions, second enterprise institutions, and third, legal institutions. And, and that's exactly what you see in every government around the earth, good or bad. They, are, they all essentially revolve around those ideas. Okay. So you, you, see, you see the power of God's word, you know, applying to believers and unbelievers. It just gets to the very basics of things. Then the third heavy topic that we dove into with Van Drunen is the best way to run a provisional human government in the current time is through natural law. And so we discussed what is the natural law, and then we discussed how to access the natural law. And the natural law, a good way to define it is to use the uh, analogy of what Tesla would call the ether. And that is the natural law is, the, is God's moral universe reflected in his creation. So when you see, for instance, the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, those are reflections of the natural law. And how many of those, after you get through the first four, you know, that, that revolve around the Lord himself, how many of those are strange to people at any time, at any place around the world? None of them. Everybody thinks murder's wrong. Right. right. There's, there's no culture that goes, hey, we're we're really good with stealing. Now, that doesn't mean they don't steal, but they certainly don't write that into their laws that you should steal and so on. Right. And, and nobody says, you know, hey, lying is a really good thing. Right. All, all those things that everybody knows in their gut, those are reflections of the natural law. So how do you access it? If it's in a sense like the ether, this invisible thing, it's really there, but it's invisible. How do you access it? Through wisdom. And wisdom isn't just in, uh, resides in unbelievable people like Solomon. Wisdom also can reside in a culture at large. For instance, I, you know, am pretty limited mentally. I know you've picked up on that. <laughs> I could not have invented a car. But I can I can drive one. Right. So I benefit from the wisdom in our culture of the transportation that's been developed. I benefit from the communications that have been developed. Right. Cultures develop a body of wisdom over time. And without getting uh, too far down a rabbit trail, I just want to emphasize that point. You know, as we're as we're going through the current throws in our culture of overthrowing capitalism and replacing that with communism, they're gonna do away with a large body of wisdom that's been accumulated in the United States. And that's just heartbreaking. It's just, it'll, set, it'll set this country back centuries. Well, and there also won't be any or very few new um, inventions 
you know, great point, great because, point. Because if you've taken away the motivation of private, yeah, I write a private book, domain, intellect, right? intelle intellectual property, property, you know, yeah. I can patent can this, I can copyright this. And because I will benefit from this and others will benefit from it, that motivation goes away. Right. So uh, when you note, you know, what we will get to, these are just four tastes of what's down the road of where, where we're headed in our Friday politics sessions. But the communism is far away from the reality of what a human being is. And capitalism is much closer to the reality of what a human being is. Right. So I have a question. So, oh, go ahead if you have a question. Didn't we, was it in a previous politics, maybe even last week, that we talked about uh, inter, uh, industrial industriousness yes. versus laziness? Yes. And that being part of wisdom. And, exactly. Um, I was... You know, we heard a few months back when they started the um, government handouts, they upped the, uh, what is it, when you don't, workers' compensation or, or yep. you lose your job, you get, you get money. Yep. And they yep. added $600 a week extra so that yep. people are, were making more money. Not working. Not working than if they were working. So they were, right. were rewarding laziness, if you will. Right. And we recently were trying to we're trying to replace the windows in our house since we moved back. Yeah. And yeah. the guy was telling me that, that there's now a three month waiting list. Once you decide you want the windows, it takes three months to get them built because they can't find workers because the workers are making more money sitting at home than if they came back to work making yeah. windows. And that's happening all over the construction world and Right. So it's, it's it's having a, a very big effect on the cost of everything and the delay in getting things. And, and so it, we're really seeing that work out. And when it first was proposed six months ago, I don't know how many months ago, there were people saying this is going to be a problem. And then there were others saying, oh, no. It's so, so it does two things. It kills the economy when you do that. And it kills the people, I'm saying kills, right? But it suppresses the economy when you do that. And it suppresses the people. It, it makes them dependent. It takes, you know, it'd be like me going into a, a swim workout and going, ah, you know, today we're just gonna stretch. We're not, we're not gonna actually swim and get faster, <laughs> you know? And you start doing that for six months at a time, and then, and then you go to a swim meet that destroys that kid. That kid will have no chance against other people. And that's actually the goal of why they're doing this. They don't want us to be the leaders in the world. They do not want a strong United States. And the reason is because what they want is a one world government. And they know the biggest obstacle to that is the United States. So they want to destroy the United States. So, yeah, it's it's disheartening. But we're going to talk about some of that, Hampton. We're going to be excited by the time we close this session. You're going to be happy about okay. where you are. <laughs> okay. So we, those are the things we've covered already in Van Drunen. But here's the question that gets raised from all those things. As believers, where do we fit? 
how do you and I fit into this thing? So how, how do we fit in as citizens of the United States? So <clears throat> here's two things to put as framing in your mind. You and I live under the Noahic covenant with everybody else. But at the same time, you and I live under the new covenant, which is for believers. So have those two pillars in your mind. So when I'm asking the question, how do you and I as Christians fit into America, have those two pillars in your mind, those okay. two covenants, okay? So underneath the Noahic covenant, you and I should strive to bolster justice, general, right, common justice for family institutions, for enterprise institutions, and for legal institutions. We should strive to bolster those things. Okay. Second, second, keep in mind, you and I, <laughs> this might be easier for you and I because we never really did fit in certain social situations, but we are sojourners here. We are in exile, right? Our home is the new creation. As much as I love this little house in Gypsum, Colorado, I look out the window, I see the snow-capped mountains. I see as much beauty as you could see uh, in this creation, just about, right? right. It, uh, minus an ocean, minus an ocean, Colorado is an unbelievably beautiful state. Once you get into the mountains, you know, the plains to the east, that's sort of an extension of Kansas. But once you get into the mountains, boy, it's just stunning all the time. And you feel jaded because you get so used to it that it doesn't have the raw, awe-inspiring effect that it always should on you. But this is not our home. I hear am a sojourner and an exile. So let's read Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read from your favorite text, Hampton. All this right. is the net. <laughs> so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. And he went out without understanding where he was going. By faith, he lived as a foreigner in the promised land, as though it were a foreign country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even though Sarah herself was barren and he was too old, he received the ability to procreate because he regarded the one who had given the promise to be trustworthy. So in fact, children were fathered by one man and this one as good as dead, like the number of stars in the sky and like the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith without receiving the things promised, but they saw, saw them in the distance and welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. 
For those who speak in such a way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. In fact, they've been thinking of the land that they had left. If they had been thinking of the land they had left, they would have had opportunity re to return. But as it is, they aspire to a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. That's powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And so that applies to us. So one of the ways I think of that is my wife is from the Philippines. And every couple years or so, we'll travel back there uh, to visit and do some other things. And my feeling as an American citizen, when I'm in the Philippines, is the feeling we should all have about our citizenship in America, right? I don't get bent out of shape about stuff when I'm over there, right? They'll, they'll go through elections and you'll see things that aren't right and so on, things that would be better if they were changed. But I'll tell you, I don't lose a minute of sleep thinking about them. It's, it's not in my gut. You know, I don't, I don't really care about that. Um, other than I love the people, of course, right? But I, I don't have this big emotional attachment to it. Right. And, and I've often thought, thought that one of the problems in America was that the foundation of this country was so powerfully Christian that it could be deceptive. You could almost think this, this was a great place. This, we, we've arrived, you know, America, the land of plenty, the look at our economics compared to around the world. Look at all these great things. And it's just not the case is this is not our home. I remember reading Lorraine Bettner's book on uh, Calvinism, predestination or something. And then he's talking early on in that book about how wonderful life is <laughs> in yeah. our society and um, he's all millennial, post-millennial. I think he was post-millennial and um, or something anyway. And I was like, what is he talking about? And I flipped to the front of the book to see when it was written. And it was like 1930 or 31. So we'd had the war to end all wars. <laughs> Which right? didn't. Yeah. And, and Hitler hadn't really come on the scene yet. Right. And so things, you know, yeah, we had a great depression, but everybody was in it together and, you know, whatever. But yes. I just, I just thought that was kind of interesting that that was his perspective. And, you know, when you look at what's going on, I don't think too many people now would think that uh, we're bringing about the millennial kingdom here and now. Right. Right. So you always have to keep in mind, right? This is a fallen world and, and there is a plan to restore it all. Uh, and so e even the great things about the United States have to be balanced with that. But I, I remember always, every time we could, we'd take our daughter with us to the Philippines. And in, in the United States, Kathy and I are as average as you get, right? We, we are middle America and our wealth here is staggering compared to around the country. Or I mean, around the, the world, around the world. 
Yeah, it's it's staggering. You can when, take your money you have now and go live like a king in the Philippines. No question. When when they visit us, Hampton, I mean, imagine, you know, here they they'll come. Oh boy, your refrigerator's full, and I'm like, well, that yeah, the one in the kitchen, but the one, you know, the two out in the garage, they're also full. They they just can't comprehend that. Right. You know what? What are you doing throwing that? food away oh it's it's old you know i i have it but i didn't eat it so i'm just throwing it away and i do that a couple times a week (laughs) that's just you know you go to a store and it's anything you want to buy is right there on the shelf and if you have to wait in line more than a couple people you're upset right that that's standard life in the united states Right. It, that's that's unheard of around well, the world. We, we lived in Germany from 87 to 90. And when you would go to the little local grocery store, there were three different things of cereal, a cornflake like cereal, a muesli, you know, and one other yes. maybe. And, and there was one brand of maybe, I don't want to say peanut butter. I don't think that was a thing in Germany. But, you know, when we got back here in 1990 and Lori was went to the grocery store for the first time and there was an entire aisle with a hundred different types of cereal, for instance, her mom made the comment, you, you seem like a person who just got out of prison. Yeah. And, you know, just overwhelmed because life was much simpler in the little town we lived in, in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, then people will point out, you know, oh, but there's plenty of poor people in America and there are, but let me tell you, the poor people in America are richer than the rich people in other countries quite often. Yeah. Quite, quite often. Um, so anyway, um, so it, the whole point is that our identity as Christians is how you solve the question. So how should I respond politically as a voting member of the United States? How, what should I do? What are my political responsibilities in this country? And to begin answering that question, you have to identify your identity, your Christian identity. And they, part of the your identity is this is not your home. As, as much as you are attached to it, as much as you breathe in and out our culture, which decides for you what clothes you're going to put on, how long your hair is going to be, everything, what car you're going to drive, and so on. It's all culturally determined. Still, it's not our home. Our home is in, in the future. And keep that in mind. So here are some lessons from the Bible, because we have a great example of how to live as a sojourner and an exile. So Abraham's one example, but Israel in captivity is also a great example, right? right? So you have, for instance, the book of Daniel, here's which centers around Daniel and his friends captive now in the, the city of Babylon, you know, a foreign, foreign country. How, how were they supposed to live? Uh, keep in mind, you know, just to set the table a little bit for contextually for thinking through that book. So the city of Babylon, what a biblical story, right? That comes up in the book of Revelation, doesn't it? 
Babylon, <laughs> right? right. right? The, the enemy of God. So here's what they would have said about Babylon back in the day. One of the nicknames, you know, we have nicknames for uh, cities. So like Cleveland, Ohio is the Garden of Cleveland, right? <laughs> Representing, you know, the Edenic paradise of Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> of course, actually, nobody calls it that. We're, we're called the mistake by the lake. Um, <clears throat> in New York, the Big Apple. Okay. Right. So many cities uh, have nicknames that characterize their, their essence. Babylon had a nickname back in the day. You will be surprised, I imagine, to hear that the nickname of the city of Babylon around the time of Daniel was the city of refuge. Really? Huh. Really. So in the United States, right, we're the country of refuge. If you can just flood through the border, you can get here. And what do our politicians promise you? Health care, all sorts of unemployment benefits, right, for foreigners, if you if you escaped to Babylon, you they would do their best to take care of you. And that that doesn't fit your instant uh, perception of that city. No. Right. Unless you knew that, unless your thought was critically determined by research, you, you would say, man, I bet there are monsters and they they really oppress the downtrodden. They did their best to to take care of you. If you were a, an escaped slave, uh, you know, other other places did not look fondly on you because they realized you'd escaped your master and their economies ran, you know, on the backs of slavery to some extent. Right. right? And they, they didn't like that. You know, you're setting a bad example. They'd return you to your master, maybe punish you, but not Babylon. Babylon would try to do their best to take care of you. There were limits to what they could do, but they would try to do that. Um, then think about the name of the city of Babylon. So a lot of names of cities and people are what we call in the Bible theophoric. That is, they reflect uh, truths as they saw them about God. So for instance, the name Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I love that name. You don't see anybody going around today with that kind no. of name. <laughs> But it's a theophoric statement, right? Nabu was one of their deities. Mm -hmm. Kad comes from the, the word Kaduri, which meant like a boundary, which metaphorically can mean protection. And Ezer means prince. So may Nabu protect the prince. That's, that's what his name means. Okay. And Daniel, for instance, Daniel, Don means to judge. L is the generic word for God. I is a possessive, right? God is my judge. Right. So a lot of names of Bibles and cities are like that. So the city of Babylon. So that comes from the term, two terms, Bob Illy, <laughs> which literally means the gates of heaven. What they thought in Babylon was this is where heaven touches earth. It's so, so interesting, you know, to get, get these fuller pictures of when you're reading through. Is, is the Tower of Babel in the same location as Babylon? Uh, close enough that it's the same kind of culture. 
same same kind okay. of culture. So when the Hebrews slaves are taken there, they're being strictly recultured, right? They change their names. They, they change their, they give them heavy education. You know, those guys are in school 24 seven for about three years to learn all the Babylonian culture. And really they wanted administrators for the, for their kingdom. So, well, we don't even know, we don't, we, very few people actually know the Jewish names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> right. It's, that just runs off our tongue, doesn't it? The, he, right. You know, it's Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael for really, but yeah, those are their Babylonian names is, is what they've become so famous for. Uh, but here's, a, let me just make three points because I'm following Dran, Van Drunen here about how the Hebrews were to live as sojourners and exiles, slaves in a foreign land. Number one, despite massive disruption that they experienced when Nebuchadnezzar hauled them to Babylon, the exiled Israelites were, con were to continue pursuing ordinary affairs of life. Jeremiah 29. So keep in mind when you when we're flipping back and forth between books like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are contemporaries. Right. Right. So Jeremiah will write for he stayed in Jerusalem and he'll write to the exiles in um, Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 29, in fact, highlights three explicit moral concerns of the Noahic covenant. The exiles were to get married. Isn't that what it said in the Noahic covenant? They're to have children and multiply in number. They're to work in support of their material needs. Isn't that what we said about the Noahic covenant? Including housing and food. And they're to promote the welfare of the city in which they now lived. In fact, it was to uh, have a just legal society. They were to promote that as much as possible. So the three main things of the Noahic covenant, Jeremiah writes explicitly in Jeremiah 29, do those things while you're there in Babylon. You know, one, one other thing, Nebuchadnezzar in a really weird way is sort of a, a hero of mine. Um, in all the ancient Near Eastern kings, you know, we have uh, artwork from those times, whether it's on palace walls, or pottery and so on, or tapestries. So you, you picture those ancient Near Eastern kings, the Assyrians, you know, you almost always see them in battle, right? right? And there are no pictures of Nebuchadnezzar in battle that I don't know if there were in history, but none of them survive down to today. The pictures that we have of Nebuchadnezzar are courtroom pictures. Right. Of of like how how to run the society. Now, who do you think was whispering in his ear all day long? Daniel. <laughs> Donnie L. God is my judge. So here's Nebuchadnezzar trying to run a just society. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's it's just something to keep in mind. So. The lessons from the Babylonian captivity uh, as it started out are these. Promote the things in your culture that are true to the Noahic covenant. Promote family institutions. Promote just government as far as you can. And promote 
business enterprises as far as you can. That's how a believer should live today as a sojourner and exile in the United States. This is not your real home. But while you're here, promote the family, promote justice, promote business. That's how you do it. And, and don't get so wrapped up in it. I mean, it took me, Hampton, I got to say, when um, Biden was declared the winner, he didn't actually win, but was declared the winner of that election. That took me, boy, that was a couple tough weeks for me, honestly. I mean, I didn't want to be around people uh, to contemplate the magnitude of that injustice was hard for me. And it, I really had to center myself back on my Christian faith and go, wait a second, this, obviously this ship is sinking, but it's not my ship. My ship's in the future. My home is with God. So in the meantime, my responsibilities are fourfold, I would say the three from the Noahic covenant, I am here to promote the family. I'll still do that, even though I think it's a losing cause, but I'm going to fight for it. And second, I'm going to promote justice. Third, I'm going to promote business. And while doing all that, I'm about search and rescue. It's bring as, <laughs> bring as many people with me as I can into the kingdom of God. Right. And, and, and really, that's what I should have always been doing. And, and that's what people should always have been doing down through the history of the United States. So I, yeah. I'm proud to be American, but, you know, I keep that, I hold that in a, in a empty hand. You know, I don't close my fist around that. Right. Well, it's uh, easy to get your faith placed in, in uh, political leaders. And we think if we just vote for the right person and they get in there, they'll, do all the right things and so yeah and and they won't so you keep keep your trust in god i remember that line was so powerful that we read in hebrews chapter 11 wouldn't you love to hear god say about hampton keithley i am not ashamed that this is my son right and that that's what i'm striving for and I hope everybody is. So we want to be in our thoughts, you know, we want to construct a palace of thought by which we can observe politics critically through through a trained eye. That, that's what we're trying to present to people. And yet your emotions need to be wrapped up in your future home, not here. So. Does that have any... Um, application for how involved we should be in politics? Or is that a future topic? You know, I, it is a future topic, but I would just quickly say you can be as involved as you feel called to be, right? If, if we are to promote justice and you're a great attorney, do that. You, you know, you're, you're called to that. Daniel was highly influential in a pagan culture, right? Politically, highly involved. Um, Belshazzar makes him a third ruler of the kingdom. He's calling the shots. Joseph was calling the shots in, in Egypt. So nothing wrong with being called to that and, right. and 
pursuing that is just do it, you know, with these thoughts in mind that that we've laid out today. And, and if your calling is not particularly in that direction, that's okay. Right? Yeah. Some people are called to that, I believe. More power to them. Okay. Is that it for the day? That's it for today, Hampton, unless you want to push any more of my buttons. <laughs> but, but the uh, snowstorm has stopped. So now just everything's soggy wet. Right. Okay. Well, I will see you uh, next time for our Truman podcast. You have a good day. Likewise. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Oh, sure.